0: We find ourselves this morning returning to our study of the Gospel of Luke. I'll we'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as we continue to follow Jesus Christ through his gospel ministry on this earth. And we are faced again with an event in the text here that, from all human perspectives, is completely impossible. And quite honestly, if we look at it simply from a human perspective, I believe that all of us here today can understand why so many people in our world just discount it as mere mythical fantasy and make believe. It is the account of the feeding of the 5,000. We find it here in Luke chapter 9. Beginning in verse 12 and going down through verse 17. It's interesting in the ministry of Jesus Christ as you read about it, because there is kind of a paradox going on between what is taking place with the people as Jesus goes through the surrounding villages in Galilee and the rejection of Jesus Christ and all that his claiming to be as God in the flesh and yet there seems to be this popularity that follows him it is rather paradoxical in the context of our passage it has only been a few days really in the ministry of Jesus that began back in Luke chapter 8 When Jesus began going to the surrounding villages in Galilee, and those whom He preached to even in His own hometown wanted nothing to do with Him, He goes to the synagogue there, preaches one message, or stands up and reads the Scriptures and begins to speak about them. And they get so angered at Him with what He is saying, they want to kill Him, throw Him off a cliff. Ministry life for Jesus Christ was busy, always busy. In this moment, it is at a fever pitch due to the fact that He will soon be heading south to Jerusalem where He will be eventually killed based upon trumped up charges that said He was blaspheming God. And in our text, you remember He has just sent out the 12 apostles. He had sent them out to do ministry and to perform miracles. He had bestowed upon them the power to accomplish things that only He could accomplish and was accomplishing in His ministry. They had been sent out with a message of repentance. Without repentance, no one comes to know Jesus Christ. And they had been given the power and authority to authenticate that message with signs and wonders they were able to prove what they were saying about Jesus because Jesus had bestowed upon them the ability to do what he did it validated what they were saying and yet in their minds there is a very vivid object lesson that is still concerning them <clears throat> concerning The potential fate of all faithful gospel proclaimers, those who preach the gospel, it's always a dangerous business. John the Baptist's death is still on their minds. What happened to him just for standing for the truth before Herod? The potential impact of the gospel on this region and those who proclaim it was in the back of their minds, I'm sure, as Jesus was sending them out into that region to proclaim it. And so Jesus, in verses 10 and 11, wants to get away for a time. It says in verses 10 and 11, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to Him of all that they had done. Taking them with Him, He withdrew by Himself to a city called Bethsaida. Bethsaida was about four miles across the sea from where He was at the time. And he wanted to, to go over there and to just get some rest in a place that was well known to all of them. And of course, verse 11 tells us what took place. The crowds were aware of this and they followed him, not by boat, they followed him by walking and it was about an eight mile walk. And so they, they were following Jesus, even though it was a short trip on the water <laughs> And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Ministry was always busy. Rest was desired and rest wasn't going to happen. Why? Because there were more lessons that needed to be learned. There are more lessons that we need to learn about Jesus Christ. More lessons before we get the chance to take a break. More lessons in our day and age here and now in our life as Christians. We don't get to just sit back and have a ministry vacation, if you will. We don't get to take time off from life. We're always learning about Jesus. And as Christians, all of us have a life of ministry because that's what we are. We are gospel proclaimers. And so there's a lesson found in the event of Jesus feeding the 5,000 about really what is not ours or what we think is ours that is never enough. Our resources. By the way, just as a side note, this event is found in all four of the Gospels, found in John, Matthew, Mark, and here in Luke. And it's only one of two miracles that is recorded in all the four Gospels. Jesus, of course, did many, many miracles, and yet there's only two that are recorded by all four Gospel writers. Each one of them shares the miraculous account of Jesus' resurrection And this one, the miraculous account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, I find it very interesting that both of them have to do with the sufficiency of God. That God is sufficient in all that He does, that He found sufficiency in Jesus Christ to pay for our sins, and here He is sufficient to supply anything that we need. So it's an important miracle for us to pay attention to so I just want to begin by reading it for us here so that we have it at least in our minds as we start. Beginning in verse 12, Now the day was ending, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in this desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them, and giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up twelve baskets full. Now there's a a whole lot of irony going on in this text. It's interesting to me here that there are twelve men who go to Jesus Christ to talk about the miracle or to talk about what they need when in fact they just came from the field doing miracles. They just came performing all things. In fact, they just got off the, the, the pedestal, if you will, telling Jesus all that they had done, it says in verse 10. And here they're faced with a dilemma that they can't seem to find the answer to in any kind of quickness. In fact, they go to their own resources as we'll talk about in just a moment, and so there's irony in that, and there's irony in the reality that there are twelve baskets left over. It could only imagine that as each of the guys are picking up the baskets, they realize there's a full basket sitting in all their laps. This is a great miracle, and miracles are intended to be directional guides for us they are signposts, if you will. They're direction signs that point for us and teach us truth concerning God Himself. In this case, God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. And when Jesus walked this earth, His miracles were to cause every person, it didn't matter man, woman, or child, they were to cause them to marvel at this One who could change a life from continual sickness into a life of health in an instant. He didn't need a process to do it. He could do it instantaneously. The miracles were to cause all who heard and all who witnessed them to turn to Him as the only one who could accomplish a miracle and bring someone from death to life. And so if we come to this miracle today or to any of the miracle accounts of Jesus Christ as we read them in the Word of God, and we go away without knowing Jesus Christ better, without looking to Jesus Christ more, without desiring to know Him better, then we've missed the point. And we, in many ways, are no better off than the people who were sitting there that day and the Jewish leaders of the day who thought, Simply that the words on the pages of their scrolls was in some way had intrinsic value in and of itself. You need to remember the reality of what took place on John the Baptist's neck was resonating in the life of the Twelve. John the Baptist was beheaded. They have that on their mind. All that God had accomplished through them as they went out to preach is on their minds. And they know that Herod has heard of all that is going on, all the excitement in the region. He has certainly heard of that and what went on through their ministry. And certainly they are no doubt anxious about all of that. And they are telling Jesus about all of it. Verse 10 says, When they returned, they gave an account to Him of all they had done, certainly about all that was going on, as we'll see even next Lord's Day, the people are asking, Jesus is even asking, "Who who do the people say I am? So part of their report is this report. And it had been, as I said, a long day of ministry and the desire for needed rest is great, but Jesus being followed by a great crowd of people because of the miracles, determines it's not time for rest. This is the scene. This is the scene everywhere Jesus goes. He's plagued by thousands who follow Him. Thousands of curious onlookers. Thousands of people who want to see something miraculous. They want to see Jesus do something. In fact, the Pharisees would continue to ask Jesus that over time. Show us a sign. Prove who you are. That didn't mean that they wanted Jesus. It didn't mean that they saw Him as the Son of God. It just simply meant that they were intrigued. Maybe He might be the promised one. Maybe He might be the one who would overthrow the current government, get us out from under the oppression of the Romans that we are under. And so nowhere that Jesus went was a time for rest. In fact, John chapter 6 and verse 15, the, John's accounting of this whole moment in time said they wanted to make Him king. Once Jesus did all this, the people flocked over to Bethsaida because they wanted to make Him king. In fact, you'll also notice, as you study the other accounts of this miracle, that it was time for Passover, it says. So the towns would have been flooded with extra people who were transitioning from the north and other places outside down to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. It says in verse seven or verse 11, the crowds were aware of this and followed him. When it says crowds, just talking. Thousands of people, and as we certainly can see in our text for today, there was at least 5,000 men. Men were normally the only ones counted by heads. In fact, when they sat to eat, normally the men sat in a different place than the women and children, so you can probably guess there were at least more than 5,000, if not upwards of 20,000 people in this group. I want us to notice as we begin that Jesus looked at these people and he saw a great need. He saw a great need. There was both spiritual and physical needs, of course, in this group. But the point is that he saw their need. He saw their need, and it says he welcomed them in verse 11. He was welcoming them. And I just want to draw out some implications for us this morning as we walk through this. And this is the first implication that I want to draw out for us. Christ is concerned about our needs. Christ is concerned about our needs. That sounds rather simplistic this morning, but oftentimes we forget that. Have you ever thought in your own heart and mind that God has forgotten about you? Have you ever thought that you are are wandering around in this world, you're trying to get by in life, you're doing everything that you think you need to do, and yet you think that God has forgotten about you, and your need really doesn't matter to God at all? If you've thought like that, maybe you're thinking like that right now. You've tried to fill your need through people, through things. You realize that people don't seem to fill that need. at all falls short. It doesn't cut it. The stuff you have doesn't fill the need. It doesn't seem to cut it for you. I want us to remember this. God is more concerned about you than others will ever be concerned about you. And God always knows and cares about your true need. In fact, the language used in Mark's record of this account says that Jesus felt compassion for them. Mark chapter 6, verse 34, that's what it says. He felt compassion for them. Luke simply records he welcomed them and began speaking to them. But the reason Jesus welcomed them is because Jesus' heart is a heart of compassion. So let's understand this as we begin, before the disciples ever came to Christ with their concern as we see in verse 12, before they were ever concerned about this crowd, even though they were godly men who just came back from ministry, before they were ever concerned with this crowd, Jesus was concerned for this crowd. Jesus was already concerned. It was Jesus, by the way, who initiates the solution. It's not the people. It's not the disciples. In fact, John's Gospel says that this was Jesus' plan all along. Read John's account. It says this is what Jesus was planning to do all along, John 6. 6. Yes, the disciples were concerned to a point, verse 12, even sends that. They come to Him and they say to Him, send the crowd away. But the concern of Christ greatly outweighs any of their concerns. So was there any need for despair? No. Had God in the flesh somehow forgotten about these people? No. And that's an implication for us. He He certainly won't forget about us. He hasn't forgot about our needs either. In fact, it shows us here that He met their need because He has compassion for them. It was out of the compassion of His heart, His care for us. And instead of turning them away, He welcomes their problem. It's a wonderful answer. For all of us to understand. Because it's here that Jesus Himself is embracing not only the need of the people, but most importantly the need of the twelve who had just come back from ministry. He, He takes them with Him, verse 10 says, He withdraws by Himself to the city and in their minds, surely they're thinking, finally, it's going to be some time for downtime. And the crowds have another option. Jesus knew this all along. And Jesus, because of His compassion for them, welcomes them. And He's teaching them and us a lesson. And the twelve the twelve, do what all of us tend to do when we face our own problems. And our own challenges. What do we do? We rely on our own resources. We rely on our own resources. Notice what he says in verses 12 and 13. He says, send the crowd, they say, send the crowd away that they can take care of their own problem. They can go into the surrounding village, they can go into the countryside, they can find lodging, get something to eat. For we're here in this desolate place. There's a problem. We we not only is that a problem, we're in this desolate place. And Jesus says to them, listen, you give them something to eat. And Jesus highlights the problem there. In one sense, there's a, an ignorant disguising of the real problem. And that is their resources. They kind of disguise it unknowingly in their own hearts by saying, listen, uh, we're, we're just out here in the middle of nowhere. We can't deal with it. Jesus says, deal with it. You give them something to eat. Solve the problem. I want to show us something in light of that from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Go there for a moment. Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 31. Jesus, of course, giving the Sermon on the Mount, says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? But he says that because before he's asking the questions, why, why are you worried about clothing? Verse 28. Don't you look at the lilies of the field and how they grow and how they don't toil, how they don't spin, yet I say to you, even Solomon has more in all of his glory clothed himself like one of the, hasn't clothed himself like one of these... If God so clothes the grass, that is the plants of the field, that's alive today and tomorrow it's thrown in the furnace, is not going to take care of you? Is He going to clothe you? Well, what's the problem? He says you, you have little faith. You have little faith. Don't worry then saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. They're solving their own problems They're trying to, but your Heavenly Father knows what you need. So what? Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness. God will take care of you. That's what He means when He says all things will be added to you. God's going to take care of you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't know about you, but I love that truth. I love that truth in my heart. And yet, intellectually, I I battle with that truth, don't you? Why? Because, Because really, in the practical realities of life, we live back in verse 30, we are little faith. And yet, we read this truth, and it brings great encouragement to our soul. Why? Well, one is because no matter what my physical needs are, God has not and God will not according to the words of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, He has not and He will not forget my needs. And with His welcoming compassion as a loving Father, He will lovingly meet each one of them according to His good pleasure. Not according to my good pleasure, but according to His good pleasure. That's one thing that I love about this. But secondly, it's encouraging also because there are many times when I'm just like the disciples. When I, I care too much about myself. I care too little about those around me, the needy people around me that, that are in my zone every day. And here's what's so comforting to me. It's comforting to know that no matter how much I fail to care for others in my sphere of influence, God always cares for them. God never fails. He always cares so much more than I ever will this side of heaven. He's far more interested. Far more interested in their their welfare than us who serve Him. Regardless of how much good we might do, Go back to Luke chapter 9. These guys just came from ministry. And they have a a concern, but it's not the depth of concern that Jesus has. Compared to God's, it's nothing really. That's That's such a wonderful truth. No matter what side we are on, if we're the one who fails to meet others' needs... And we continually miss their cries for lonely, of loneliness, their cries of frustration, their heart cries to us. Jesus is there. Jesus never misses it. Maybe we're the one on the other side that no matter what concerned people say to us, what they do for us, or what they try to do, or what we try to do for ourselves in some way in our time of need, it never seems to bring the comfort we desire. Only Jesus can do that. All of our best efforts seem to just come up to one big zero, one end in nothing. And I guess that's one of the things as I was studying this and going through it, I just wanted to remind us of this morning that there's only one who will really never fail us. I mean, it seems so, such at a, at a, at a children's Sunday school level, doesn't it? Jesus will never fail you. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? It's true. There's only one who is eternal, only one who has a concern and compassion that will never fail. We know who he is. He existed before time ever began. He's the very one who created time. He's the very one who raised His eyes to the Father and knew the need of this people in a physical sense and knew their needs spiritually on the hills of Galilee that day before He ever voiced a concern. John's Gospel says He planned this very circumstance just like He perfectly plans all the circumstances of our lives, perfectly knows our situation, He's the very one who wants to supply our real needs, not just so that we get by, but He wants to meet all our needs according to His abundant resource. That's the first truth I want us to understand this morning. God cares about our needs. He never forgets them. Never. Second truth I want to pull from this text is this. Sometimes, Sometimes God allows us to see our limited resources so that we can only turn to Him to strengthen our faith. Let me say that again. Sometimes God allows us to see our limited resources so that we can only turn to Him so that our faith would be strengthened. Notice what Jesus says to them in verse 13. You give them something to eat, and they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. John's gospel tells us that these are the words of Philip. Jesus had specifically spoken to Philip. You feed them, so Philip is saying this answer on behalf of all of them. Surely they were all there with Jesus. And it says in verse 6 of John's Gospel, this he was saying in order to test him. We don't like tests. Jesus loves tests. All right, Philip, you just came off ministry. I've empowered you. You know it was me who was doing it. I told you what to say. And I told you here's how you can do it. You can authenticate it through this. Do these things. You come back. Oh, you're on cloud nine for ministry. You tell me all that you have done. Well, here's a task. Feed these people. Here's a test for you. Philip. Feed them. Feed them. The whole purpose is this lesson. It's not just to show that Christ could and that He would meet each and every real need, but it's also to show that difficulty causes us to most rely upon Him. God wants us at the place where we stop relying on us without Him. When they did ministry, that's all they could rely on. Jesus had sent them out. They knew that. And now they need to rely on him again. And yet they immediately, like us, go back to their own resources. This is all we got. The disciples are being put to the test. The problem is huge. Their resources are small. So is their faith. They had been with Jesus. They had seen him do many miraculous things. They had been equipped themselves to do miracles. And we read texts like this and we go, man, these guys are knuckleheads. We can get so hard on them. We do that if we're not careful. They should have known what was better. Really? How often do we do that same kind of thing? How often do we have that same kind of thinking? How often have we seen the faithfulness of God in our lives? He meets our needs in ways that we can't even comprehend. He accomplishes things that are beyond our comprehension. And as soon as we're faced with a new one, we immediately forget what He's done in the past. We forget that He is sufficient for all things. As I look at my own life, I'm constantly amazed at the provision of God for my life. He's always seen me through. We have to realize that God allows difficulty, struggle, simply for the purpose that we'll look more to Him in faith. Course, that's not the need we think we have. When we're going through a struggle, we don't think that's our need, that we need to trust Him more, but it's the need that God knows we have. That's what the disciples are faced with their own resources. We have no more than five loaves, two fish. Unless we go buy food for these people. And of course, the other Gospels say that it would take two, more than 200 days' wages to buy even a little portion of food for all of these people. We don't have the resources. It's a difficult problem. They don't know how they're going to meet the need. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. It's not a question. Command, you feed them. The problem, beloved, is that they did what most of us do when we're faced with that problem. Can't find a way out, and instead of turning to God, resting in the fact that he always meets real needs, and say, God, well, I don't have it. you got to do something. We turn to our own resources, and our resources never satisfy they never truly meet the real need. So difficult times are tailor-made by God so that we'll turn to the one who has the resources. So that We'll trust in Him as the solution. Because human answers and human solutions will never be enough. Yet in the disciples' minds, that's where they went. This is what we got. So Jesus says to them in verse 14, have them, sit. have them sit down, groups of about 50 each. This is the third point that we need to understand. Our limited resources never limit God. Our limited resources never limit God. There's a great example of this, by the way, throughout Scripture, there's a lot of them, but... My mind immediately went to 1 Samuel chapter 17. You don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of relay it to us. It's the account of the battle between Israel and the Philistine army, which Goliath was part of. We all love this story. Years before Israel went out to fight this particular battle, Israel had rebelled against God and wanted a king, they had departed from trusting God. You know, God had given them someone to lead them. He had given them judges to rule the nation. And they decided they wanted to be like all the other nations. We want to be like the nations around us. We want to have a king. And so they went ahead and made their choice for a king. They looked for the most beautiful man around. The tallest, the darkest, the most handsome one they could find to be their king, they thought He would lead them to victory. They took of their limited resources and found their king. They thought He would stand up to the giant Goliath, but He cowered just like all the other nations. They thought if they just had the right kind of man, someone who could stand up to other nations, if we just had that kind of man, we will be victorious. They forgot about God. Saul was their resource. He was their choice, but he wasn't God's. Because they had defective concept of God, they looked at their own resources and those resources ended up short. That's what always happens. But God's choice was a little shepherd boy in the fields... And so David, he had a different view of God. It didn't matter what his resources were, even if that he needed to fight with a small slingshot and a few rocks. Remember, they tried to outfit him with some kind of... Armor that was too big for him. I could only see him as if he was a little child bumping around with all this heavy gear on him. He couldn't do anything. He said, I don't want that stuff. I don't need that stuff. He was confident that God would meet his real need. And David understood that small resources never limited God. And that's the principle Jesus is teaching his disciples that they can expand their view of Him in their lives. Luke says that Jesus tells them to feed the crowd, and they conclude they only have a little bit. Not even enough to deal with this large problem. That's the conclusion we come to oftentimes in our own hearts. That's us. No matter how much we have by way of resources, it doesn't matter how big the pile is, it wouldn't matter how much money, how much talent, how much knowledge, how much experience, none of it matters. It never seems to be enough to accomplish the task. Never is enough to meet the real need. And although it might seem impossible, nothing is impossible with God because our resources never limit God, no matter how small. 1 Samuel 17 is clear on that. David's sling and five stones that he picked up brought victory. The whole nation of Israel saw it because David knew that it was God's battle, not his. Here these guys are, five loaves, two fish. That's not going to limit God. It's not going to limit His effectiveness any more than our meager resources limit God and His effectiveness with us. And so God is more concerned about us than anyone else will ever be concerned about us. And sometimes God allows us to see our limited resources so that we will trust in Him more. And third, our small, limited resources never limit God. There's a fourth truth here that I want us to understand this morning. It's this. Number four, sometimes we need to just simply rest in the reality that the solution is in the process and not all at once. The solution is in the process, not all at once. Notice what happens. Verse 15. So well, they did so. They did what Jesus said to them. Have them sat down. They took the five loaves and the two fish. Looking up to heaven, He blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. Verse 16 is the, is the crux point. That's, that's when it all happens. That's when, when the answer from God takes place. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the broken pieces which were left over that they picked up were 12 baskets full. Now notice that Jesus didn't just make a pile of food appear and have everybody file through like it was some kind of buffet line. He didn't do that. Hey, wow, look at this pile of bread that's immediately here and all these fish and come get your fill. That wasn't it. When he had finished thanking his father for the provision. And the disciples opened their eyes. There was still just five loaves and two fish sitting there. But God solved the problem in the process. That's why verse 16 is so incredible. He took the five loaves, two fish, and he looks to heaven. That's the posture of praying in that day. And He blessed them. He thanks God for them. And He breaks them. And He keeps giving them to the disciples. He kept giving them to the disciples. Don't don't walk too quickly past that point because Jesus is creating fresh new bread and new fish right before their eyes in the moment. He just keeps handing it out. His supply is never exhausted. I can only imagine them passing the baskets wondering all along if this was going to do anything. And In the process, they see once again the miracle of God. Jesus solves the problem. The problem that they thought with limited resources, he does it with abundance. All the people were satisfied. You see that? They were all satisfied. It's like many of us are going to go downstairs a little later. We're going to go through the buffet line that we've all supplied there by God's grace. And we're going to sit down and we're going to eat and and we're going to go, man, I'm stuffed. I can't have any more. That's that's the deal. We're not talking about loaves of bread here, people. We're talking about little biscuits. Five small little biscuits. Two fish. Probably no bigger than maybe four or five inches. Jesus feeds some 20,000 people just by continuing to give it. Here it is. Here's some more. Oh yeah, I still have that. Oh, you need some more? Yeah, here's some more. There's another 50 over there. Here you go. All the hungry people, all the people who had hunger were completely satisfied. They were completely at the point where they said, I can't have any more. Take it away. In fact, that's the original language. The word carries the idea that they could not eat anymore. They were filled to the brim. In fact, there was so much, they had 12 baskets of leftovers. I think that's irony. A a, a basket for each apostle. Here you go, guys. Here's the crumbs. They were holding in their hands the object lesson of Christ's sufficiency. You think they got the message never doubt my sufficiency? Never doubt. Listen, this is an incredible miracle. Jesus Christ is all we need. It's all we need. He is sufficient. What we have, whatever that is, is enough. It's enough. Have you ever experienced that provision in your own life? I remember several years ago when I was thinking about going to seminary contemplating leaving a job that was very lucrative at the time, moving my family down to Southern California, not knowing how I was going to pay for seminary. God was orchestrating all the details, all the trouble, all the difficulty, so that in the end, my seminary cost me out of my own pocket, actual money, $750. That's what he did. In first Samuel 17 it says these words. I love these words. Verse 47 to 50. Here's what David said: the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's. He'll give you into he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stone sank deep into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50 says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. I'm so glad verse 50 doesn't end with, and David prevailed over the Philistine, period. I'm so glad it adds the other phraseology, that David prevailed with a sling and a stone. And then it says this, there was no sword in the hand of David. He had so little He didn't have what man thinks so much of. David ran into the problem, and God solved it in the process. And all people saw the glory of God. Because no one would have ever thought this little shepherd boy with such meager resources could accomplish so much. Beloved, the disciples followed what Christ had asked of them. And the solution happened in the process. When we trust God, when we begin to walk and embrace the reality of our limited resources with Him, we will see the solution that only He can bring. Why? Because solutions rarely come in the form of the problem just going away. God's solutions often come as we embrace the reality of our limited resources and we just trust Him in the process. I ask the question, do you think the disciples got it? Do you think they ever struggled with the issue of trusting Christ again? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in the other Gospels, Jesus had to almost perform the exact same miracle again where Jesus feeds the 4,000. We're not so different. We're not so different than these men who walked with Jesus and asked Him to increase their faith. We need our faith increased. It's easy to trust God when things are going well. Doesn't make much. Doesn't take much faith to trust God when you have enough money in your bank account, when you can just fulfill every desire your heart ever wants. Doesn't take a whole lot of faith for that. Doesn't take a whole lot of faith when you have great health and you never have a medical issue. Doesn't take a whole lot of faith when all of the people who know you like you. Faith is most needed when you're walking through those dark times. And it's emotionally troubling when it's physically hard and painful and you know you don't have what's going to take. When you're gripped with uncertainty, when you're gripped with fear, and anxiousness is stirring in your heart, it's at those times that our faith has to be fully engaged. Why? Because it's at our lowest times that we see true level of faith in us. So there's a supreme lesson in all of this. It has to do with faith. It has to do with faith. You say, how do you know that? Get into it next week, but you notice verse 24. Jesus says, "Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it." about faith. Who do you trust? We have to learn the same truth that the disciples were taught that day. We have to learn the truth that Theophilus, the person that Luke is writing to, so that he might know about Jesus better. That Jesus is sufficient to supply. He is the sufficient one. It is Jesus Christ who knows all our needs, even when it seems impossible. Going to Christ, sadly, for these men and for us, it's unfortunately the last thing on our minds in times of trouble. In fact, we say those words that we should never say. Well, in the end, the last thing I can do is pray. That's the first thing we ought to do. In fact, even when Jesus was solving the problem, that's the first thing he did. Just lifted up his eyes to heaven. Thank God. So just like most of us, they were inclined to just rely on their own resources rather than on Christ. That's what people do today with salvation. And they just rely on their own resources. Hey, I'm a good person. Here's my pile of stuff. Here's my pile of morality. It should be good enough. It should outweigh the the bad things I've done. It's good enough. My resources are enough. People turn to everything else other than Christ. He's the only solution. I guess that's my prayer today, that all of us would experientially understand that God is sufficient. That He's sufficient for every need and especially for the most the greatest need that we have, which is salvation. He will increase our faith. He's all we need. Our resources are never enough. Never enough. Following this, Jesus asks that question that we all have to answer. Who do the people say that I am? We'll get to that next time. Let's pray together. (coughs) Father, an astounding miracle, you chose to record it four times. No less astounding than the reality of what you did with Israel for 40 years as they walked through the desert, fed them every day, always supplying, always caring for them. Not just physically, but more importantly, spiritually. And yet even through it all, our faith, just like their faith, is weak. It's weak, and so you, you work to strengthen it. And you love your children, and you will strengthen their faith. And so we can thank you for the lesson. We can thank you for the challenge. Lord, may we be faithful in those times to run to you and rest in you. Lord, this morning we just think about our sister Jackie in the hospital as she is enduring the struggle, potential surgery in her heart. Lord, we pray that you would care for her as you always do. Let her rest in you. I trust you through it all. May you bless our time for the rest of our day in fellowship in Christ's name, amen.